Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Gaia Bernstein. She's the author of the brand new book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. And she's uniquely positioned to write this book because she wears many hats. She's a law professor, She's the co-director of both the Institute for Privacy Protection and the Gibbons Institute for Law, Science, and Technology at Seton Hall University School of Law. She's an advocate, a researcher. She's exploring the intricate intersections of law, technology, health, and privacy. And as a mother of children growing up in a digital age, she understands the impact of technology on our daily lives. Not only that, but holding academic degrees in both law and psychology She's got this multidisciplinary approach that she brings to her research, intertwining psychology, sociology, science, and technology studies with law to offer a very valuable insight into, as you know, this ever-evolving digital landscape. So if you're a parent and you're thinking about this stuff and how it affects your kids and yourself for that matter, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Gaia Bernstein. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Gaia Bernstein. Gaia, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled about your book. It is amazing. And it's a topic we've touched on periodically throughout the years on the show in terms of technology and screen time, but much more than that. The book's called Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. And we all know that's what they are, but we kind of justify or use them to the point where we, you know, feel like we've gotten more out of it than maybe we really have. But I'm curious, you obviously have a background in research and awareness of this. What was the path that brought you to, okay, I've got to talk about this and I've got to write a book about it? So I think I noticed it quite early. It was, I think, around 2015. 
you know, I guess we all have moments where we realize something. So for me, it was one day I was walking out of a yoga class and New York City and I was going to get coffee and there were lots of people standing in line in front of me. And I guess usually I would have taken out my phone for some reason I didn't. Maybe it was the influence of the yoga. So I looked around and I realized that nobody was looking back and everybody was looking down and it was so strange. And I think at that moment, I started noticing much more of what was happening around me and how I was doing it myself. And I realized, you know, I would try to work and I would get nothing done. And when I tried to learn what happened for the last two or three hours, I realized I was just, you know, texting and I was answering emails and I was looking at blogs, which were hot at that time. And I was not really controlling what was going on. And I have three kids and I was seeing how things were changing around them as well. How we would go to, to visit friends and the parents had trouble getting the kids off the iPad so they would play with our kids and the yelling and then kids who are older behaving like toddlers. And it suddenly struck me that something is very, very different. Anybody who's been a parent has experienced this for sure. Being my generation, kind of a zennial in between millennials and Gen X, I'm not sure where you fall, but I know that I fall in that. We grew up without it, but then it came in technology, you know, screens and all of the different things that are wrapped up in it, the internet, smartphones, et cetera, came in about this time of just past college, somewhere in there, and then really accelerated quickly to the point where we could kind of speak and talk in both worlds. But we noticed that the older generation and then the younger generation were very much caught up and addicted by it as well. Right. And I think that this is quite uh, incredible. I mean, my mother, she's in her 80s and she's texting all the time. I think, though, that they did affect all of us. I think that kids are affected more because of how the addictive patterns affect, you know, their brains and the fact that they don't know anything. They don't remember times where they would spend most of their time hanging out with friends. They're used to the idea that you go home and you sit in your bed and look at your phone. And that's part of the problem that by the time we started noticing it and discussing it, we have a whole generation of kids sitting in front of screens for over a decade. And on top of that, there was a pandemic. And the question is, how do you even move out of this kind of situation? Yeah, if, if it weren't enough already that they were acclimated and normalized to, what do you mean I'm not supposed to be constantly contacting every single person I know at all times of day? The pandemic then happened where you couldn't get together physically, so you did it digitally. Yes, and I think there was, I mean, there was some obviously very bad things about the pandemic being the pandemic and very bad things for screen time, which was going up and really accelerated and never, if you look at the statistics, never really went down, actually still going up since the pandemic. Though I do think there was something good about this moment, and maybe I'm just, I hope I'm an optimistic person, but the fact that uh, people suddenly felt before the pandemic, I was talking a lot to parents, I ran a program, an outreach program, and parents were worried, but most people did not pay that much attention. And after so many people in New York, it was lockdown, it was longer than in many other places, but sat at home and felt like in their bodies how it feels to sit in front of the screen all day long and how they mentally felt. I think there's much more awareness and much more desire for change 
even among people who don't have children, they just realize that's not really how they want to live. Yeah, and I get you right there because I, I mean, I was a remote worker even before being a remote worker. I was sitting in a cubicle all day, but then I was sitting at home, and you know, all the lines blurred. I was sitting in front of a screen in front of my desk, but then it was also okay. I'm going to get up and take a break. Grabs phone off desk, walks out of office and then stares at phone for a half hour thinking it's a break when it's not. And so everything's just kind of compounded is the word I'm looking for and just continues to roll over in interest when it comes to the grading of our attention and our, our mental faculties. Right. Yeah. And, and and I think we got to that and it's harder. You know, I, I started listening to lots of podcasts during the pandemic. So I, I'm used to walking and listening to podcasts, but that means and I still, I'm still doing it, but I have my phone in my hand. So every once in a while, I stop to check my emails and why I didn't used to do that beforehand. Yeah, it's just habitual. Well, and, and you talk about this in the book, the devices, you know, hardware and software have been engineered to keep our attention. And so there's really not a accountability is not the right word, although we can go there later. There's not an incentive is probably the better way to put it for these devices to be designed in a way where we can put them down. It's a fight, in other words. Right. And I, I think there's more information about that, which came out from the whistleblowers from Silicon Valley about how technology companies are working to addict the through designs. But it's really important to see the whole picture. And the whole picture is that this has been the business model on the Internet for two decades now that we do not pay for things, we get Gmail for free, we get Instagram for free, but we pay with our time and with our data. So they have to keep us online for as long as possible so they could collect more data on us. And then again, they need us online for as long as possible so, so we'll see the advertising that's targeted based on this data and we'll buy the products and services so they can keep selling advertisers because advertisement, because that's where the revenues come from. So given that that's the business model, they have to keep coming up and they've done this really effectively, which with invisible designs that keep us online for long. And I think that in a way, until this changes, and there are lots of things that can be done, but there's something very inherently problematic that has to change for things to move forward. Yeah. And we can go into some of the regulatory slash, you know, corporate level stuff at some point here. I, I want to get to that. My thought is, is just what if somebody out there right now, they're listening and they say, okay, I hear you. I feel like, yeah, I'm probably either looking at a television or a laptop or a desktop or especially a smartphone more often maybe than I want to. But am I really addicted? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, Technology addiction is a popular term and I use it, but it's not my favorite term. I think there are some people who are really addicted and there is a definition for something called gaming addiction. And these are often kids who are playing games for hours and hours and they will keep going despite bad consequences of, you know, failing out of school. They prioritize it over everything in life. It goes on for a long time. And, and then if you look at the studies, there are studies looking, and these are not addictions which have been uh, recognized professionally, like gaming addiction, but there's what's called internet addiction and smartphone addiction. And researchers have, you know, found, depending on the studies, you know, between 
one to 20 percent are addicted. But I think the big issue here is that we all overuse our technologies so much that many of us have some of these symptoms of addiction. For example, one of like having an anxiety when you don't have your phone. I mean, for me, it was a very memorable day because I work in New York City. I live in New York City and I work in New Jersey and I take the train. And on the ground, you don't have a reception. I remember going above ground and realizing that I left my phone in New York City. Now, I teach classes at the law school. I didn't have time to go back to New York City to get my phone. And I was extremely anxious all day. I kept thinking, what if people tried to reach me? And during meetings, I couldn't even check my email. And I ended up going home early that day just to get my phone. So this kind of anxiety, what we don't have, the phone is a symptom of addiction. So it doesn't mean that I, many of us will qualify for all of them, but too many of us have some of them. Yeah, that that phantom limb of the phone is not on me anymore. It's like, oh, no, where are my keys? Where's my wallet? I mean, that's become the trifecta now, right? It's been your keys, your your wallet or your purse and your phone. Right. And it's not just about, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. What if people are trying to contact me? It's more over, well, I don't have a way to get a hold of other people. What if there's something happening out there that I don't know about? Or, you know, we we've just become, I think it's... It's not just the device and the technology. It's we've gotten almost to this point of habitualizing the mentality that we want the information hit often. Right. Exactly. So I think it's part of it. It's many of these designs are built in what's called the intermittent reward model that we, when we get a reward, not on a regular basis, but once in a while, we get a stronger boost of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which it gives us a sense of pleasure. So we keep checking when we keep checking every time we see you know, a red dot on our phone uh, or we get a like or a comment on Instagram or Facebook. We don't always get them. So we keep checking. We never know when we're going to get them. And so many designs on the internet are based on that. If you go on Tinder, when you swipe, you don't always get a match. Sometimes you will get a match. So when you don't have your phone, you forgot it, you suddenly don't have it, you're standing there and you don't know what to do with yourself. You're so used to just, you know, waiting for a second so you, you get your phone out and you get this boost. So it's part of physiological. How do we, I mean, again, if we've become physiologically in tune to the technology in that way, which again, was not how any of us were born. It's how we acclimated. And again, I said earlier, there's different generations. They've grown up. Some have grown up with it the entire time. Like my kids, I myself did not, but then it got entered into at a certain kind of formative age. And even people older than me, a generation older than me though, have become habitualized to it. How would you suggest Again, there's different methods that have been introduced, obviously, in terms of, well, here's how you can make healthier choices with your technology and your screen time, et cetera. But in the book, you talk about that being maybe not the right way to go. Those may not be as helpful as we think they are. Right. So I think that is one of the most important messages that I have in the book, because I really started as a believer that once people realize a problem, they can use self-help measures to fix the problems. And I, as I mentioned, I read an outreach program in uh, six schools in New York and New Jersey. My law students 
taught uh, kids when they got their first cell phones and I spoke to parents. It was 2017, so pretty early on. And when I started speaking, people were less aware of the issue. And I really thought it's just an issue of understanding. And then I would come up with a slide with all these self-help measures. Don't have your phone on the dinner table. Take it away from the kids before they go to bed. Use apps to limit the time. But I realized about a year later that things were not changing. And I just witnessed these battles, how parents blamed themselves. They blamed their children. My kid is an addict. Something is wrong with my family. And we blame ourselves every time when we decide we're not going to waste time and we end up doing it. And I think the important thing is to move away because the tech companies want us to blame ourselves. They are using this old tactic that other industries have used before of having the consumer, when they have a harmful product, which is affecting the consumer, but they're arguing that the consumer is choosing to use it. The consumer is uh, choosing to, is responsible for any results. And with technology, we're not even called consumers, we're called users. I've never heard about another industry that calls the consumers users. So I think they've gone further other industries before them because other industries like the tobacco industries, they blamed smokers for smoking. So when the smokers sued, they argued, well, you chose to smoke, you're responsible for lung cancer and any other ailment and eventual death. And they actually won these cases for years. The technology companies are not, some are saying that, but what they're mainly doing is they're giving us these tools, like these uh, digital well-being tools. So we can see how much time we spent on our phone. We can uh, even you know, limit how much time we spend on an app. You, you can get notifications telling your yourself or your kids how much time you've spent on Instagram. Maybe you want to get off. But you get parental control, which never, ever works. And the thing is, all of these measures are there to give us the feeling that we can do this, but they don't really target the addictive features. They are just there to make us sh- make sure that we should blame ourselves. And I think that's a big message that I am, have set in the book that we should stop blaming ourselves and relying on this and try to see how we can do things collectively to change things. Yeah, the the screen time or those self-help measures seem to me, like if we were going to take that analogy, it's almost like, well, here on the back of your pack of cigarettes, there's a checklist for where you can mark how many you had each day and you can kind of track and and maybe make healthier choices. But I mean, come on, that's, that's literally using the tool with the problem at the same time. It's like, well, I'm going to go into my phone and check my screen time and see how it measures while I'm literally using the tool to check the, the thing, right? It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Right. And some of these inventions were even more ridiculous. Like Google invented this envelope in which you could put your phone and I think you could call it. Maybe you could check the time, but not anything else. So like putting a cigarette pack inside an envelope and saying, well, how long are you going to resist it? Yeah. Explain a little bit more about like how have these limiting screen time software and measures for users, man, it's huge that we use the word users for it, but can you talk a little bit more about the digital well-being tools and how they've basically failed to limit that screen time and they're not really working? Okay. So I think it's important to understand like what are the really addictive features and how they don't touch them. First of all, I talked about the intermittent reward model. So 
the fact that we get these notifications. They're always on. We can turn them off. The default options is to be notified all the time. And the games, there's something called loot boxes, which kids love because they're like surprise boxes where you can get more powers, more points. And, but you never know when you're going to get it. So you keep playing. And there's something which everybody's noticed, I'm sure, called the infinite scroll. So they've taken away our stopping signs. So when you go through Twitter, you go through Instagram, Facebook, there's never an end to the page. No stopping sign on YouTube, on Netflix. There's always another video coming. Again, no stopping signs. They don't touch this and they don't make the limiting time a default measure. And they make their phones as shiny and as attractive as possible. So they tell you how much time you've spent, but it doesn't make a difference. There's lots of studies showing how people tried and they failed. And of course, they blame themselves. So Infinite had really, really wanted to change things. They would eliminate these very, very addictive features. But the, the goal is not to do that. The goal is just to make us feel like we have an ability to control ourselves. If we're not doing it, then we are failing, not them. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com dot com slash to do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast indeed.com slash to do list terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed are there any other stealth like designs inside of the from from the tech companies i should say where they've designed it that way i know you've hit on a couple here but is there any other way that like because i want to drive this home i want people to realize that their issues with their screen time, as aware of it as they may or may not be, some of the decision is kind of being pulled from them or, or being forced on them, in other words. What other ways is the design of the tech being used against us? So I'll give an example. So there's some features which are only there to make sure we go back to the platform. I think the most vile one is snap streaks. Kids tend to use it more, but the idea there is a kid has to send a streak to a friend and they get one back within 24 hours and they start a snap streak. And then there's a chart showing how many days you've been going on, like 123 days, 144 days, and you get special badges. And then you have all your friends. It's like a popularity chart. If you miss a day, you lose everything. You lose all your friends. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to write anything of content there or even put a photograph. The only thing it does is make sure that you go back to Snapchat to see the ads. What parents and understand, they take a kid's phone, the kid will do anything to make sure somebody will send this streak for them because they lose so much. 
So they're using several things here. They're using the fear of missing out as a huge thing. The idea of losing your friends, not being part of the crowd is much stronger when you're younger. So it's definitely using that. And that's something that's used in other social networks as well. As we know, like Instagram with all the photos where everybody's doing well and so it affects kids more. So there's certain things there that I think if there's a feature that does nothing but just keep you there for longer, there's a problem. It becomes more complicated when you have features like like and comments, which deliver some content, but they operate in such a strong intermittent reward model. That's why it gets complicated. So that's why I think I'm saying there's some addictive features that really need to go. But as long as the business model with incentive to keep us there for as long as possible, they will always come up with new things. So I can sit here and describe the ones we have today, and we've had them for a long time. But if they were outlawed by themselves and things did not change in a way that was much more comprehensive, then there'll be new ones. And I know that there's another example that you have, like with the social network of Be Real, that falls under this as well. So Be Real is an interesting, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, because I think it's, not as successful as people expected it to be. So that, so that two things. One, on the one hand, they send you a message once a day and you don't know when it's going to be. So you, you're always waiting for the moment to take your photo. You can't. So that, that's in the intermittent reward thing. They're still using it. On the other hand, it's just once a day and it seems like kids are not, they're not using it by itself. It's not addictive enough to have replaced the other social networks. Yeah, I was talking about this. I don't use it. I've tried it. Didn't really take, but I couldn't help but think of, it's like you've got that one, you know every day there's going to be that one phone call and you just have to be in on-call mode all day, every day. And just that even slight agitation of, I'm going to get a call at some point and I've got to be ready for it, just doesn't feel healthy to me personally. Right. So they try to sort of walk a balance between being addictive but not too addictive, and I think has not landed anywhere yet. So I think we'll see what happens with this, if they'll change things. I know that there's also the tendency of the media to focus in on, you know, new apps or new technology, new solutions, but they don't tend to make a dent or make any difference at all. Can you speak to that a little bit? So... Well, sometimes new solutions are not real solutions because they're not really less addictive. But another problem is when you're dealing with Facebook social networks, you need a critical mass. I mean, a social network is useless to you unless you have enough friends. That's why I can do very little with Bereal. I know very few people there. So even as I was researching it, I didn't have that. I had to convince people to go and be real so I could uh, connect with them and see what was going on. So that's a problem for things to, I guess, for new business model to get new users. And then there are things which are just masquerading as good things while they're not, when they're all, as I said, all these supposedly digital well-being tools and uh, are not really making a difference. I know that in the book you say, and I'll quote you here, that it's actually the remnants of choice that are so misleading and reinforce the illusion of control. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so 
the thing is, you know, when you have something important to do, like I'm a professor, let's say I have to prepare a class for the next day, prepare a conference paper, I can control my wandering on the internet and just you know, focus on what I need to do, which gives me the, the sense that actually I do have a choice. And if I don't do this all the time, something is wrong with me. So the fact that sometimes we can make the choice makes it even more confusing. So in other words, if we feel like we have the choice or enough of the choice, enough of the time, it feels like we have control. So then the problem is us, not the technology. Is that kind of what we're saying here? That is a big part of it. And I think another part of it is that we never really, we feel like we chose, I mean, I chose to join Facebook. I chose to start, you know, texting on the go and answering emails on the go. And so we feel like we made these choices, but we made choices which we didn't think will mean so much in our lives. We didn't realize we'll end up spending so many hours of our lives on our phone. But if we think back, we think it's us. Yeah. Well, and, and it's not even just us because, again, some of us are parents and we're making choices around this technology on behalf of our kids. And that's also not necessary. I mean, they're growing up in this. It's almost like they're the boiling of the frog, right? They're sitting in the hot water and it just keeps getting turned up hotter and hotter. I think uh, many of our kids are already boiled. They're already boiled. into the boiling water, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at here. And so I guess what I'm curious of is, you know, it's it's like they're born smokers, to use the analogy that we were talking about earlier and the personal responsibility argument that's been made. You know, I mean, other than being collective and communal and corporate about it, as air quotes, users, and we band together and start doing things, obviously on an individual basis, we'd love to have more control and make changes personally, but that's an uphill battle individually. But even collectively, there's, you know, accountability, but like there's multiple layers and levels here from, from an individual level and our ki- from our kids to ourselves on up through to corporate. What are you prescribing is kind of like, what's our way out here? Where do we get some hope in this situation? I guess is what I'm ultimately saying. So the hope, I think, first of all, there's a lot of awareness now. This was not a case when I started speaking to person in 2017. There's been a lot of publicity, the whistleblowers like Francis Hogan, who reported on how Facebook Jones, Instagram knew that it was addicting the kids and kept going and knew they were harming them. So the information is out that people are aware of the issue, especially after the pandemic. Also, there is a lot of action going on. And one of the things, there's not, you know, one organized movement. So it's hard for people to see the big picture. And that was one of my goals to show that there's already movement taking place. It's taking place in many countries. It's taking place for class actions of parents against gay manufacturers, against uh, social networks for addicting kids. It's taking place through bills, which are becoming laws in some states to regulate social networks, lots of activity and Congress. There are lots of legal things going on, but of course, most people are not lawyers, so they think, what can we do? So I think when I talk about collective, yes, I think, of course, you want to set certain norms in your home because if we don't do that, by the time things change legally, it will be very difficult to change what happens in your family. 
So you do want, for example, not to have phones at dinner, or if you cannot take the kids out to dinner with an iPad. And, but I think collectively means what can I do, first of all, in my kids' school? So schools are a very important space to think about because the current uh, policies, the more technology, the better. And before the pandemic, teachers didn't like technology so much, but they learned for the pandemic how to use it. And now Minecraft, they're teaching in Minecraft and Roblox, they're posting on TikTok. And if kids are sitting in front of screens at schools, it's not just the screen hours at school, it's also they come home, they're doing homework on screen. They can do whatever they want. These parental controls don't really work to differentiate between homework and, and games. And if Minecraft is schoolwork, how can you tell your kid to get off it? So I think parents have lots of influence in districts and individual schools to change things and to make sure there's a limited screen time. The technology only used is used if it's better than a teacher, not as an automatic thing. And I think parents, we're all, many of us are professionals and in many professions we have an M, whether you are a designer and you are designing a technology, you can think, am I designing a feature that's there just to keep users on for longer? And that's it. Maybe I do not want to design it. If you're starting an online company, do I want to have a business model based on time or do I want to innovate? Um, if you own a restaurant, you have so many choices. Do, I, do you want QR codes? Do people come in and immediately put the phone on the table because they have to look at the menu through their phone? Or do you want a menu? Do you want to give kids crayons so they want to sit with the iPads? There are many ways which can change things in professional environment that can change norms while I do think things are already changing legally. Obviously, aside from the book, what are some of the things that you're excited as well as involved with in terms of creating greater awareness as well as combating, again, some of this technology overload? First of all, I'm very excited about the things which are happening legally. I think the battles against privacy, which are have been going on for a while, are very much related to all of this. And there's much activity because it's the same business model. So if you defeat the data thing, the whole thing starts to crumble. So that, that I've, I've been teaching privacy for years. I actually much more worried about the harms of screen time, but I think it's part of the same thing. And when this change, it will have a long-term effect. So that is one thing. Another thing I'm thinking about and I'm very interested in is, um, creating guidelines for schools because Schools do not really know what to do because for so many years I've been hearing the more technology, the better. If schools had guidelines, and I think there's some organizations that are already working on them, which would tell them how to handle technology in the classroom. For example, computer use for coding is a great idea, but you don't need to have a computer for people to take notes when they're nine years old or to read on the computer. So. I think that that will fill an important gap because I think it will take a while until federal policy will change. But I think a lot of teachers and teachers, by the way, are another very important professional group that can make a difference. But they need to know they have to have some ideas of what to do. And the other thing I think that is hard and, and it's similar to the role of a teacher is the, the role of the parent where 
it's just easier to allow it to happen because we've also gotten to the point where, well, it's just easier for me to check my phone all the time versus to be bored, for example, which is a really healthy thing. Being bored is healthy. And we have lost that, I think. I mean, again, when I was little and I didn't want to be bored, I would go figure out something to do. But that's the point. We had limited options and we used our imagination. And I know I'm sounding like a get off my lawn person here as I say this, but it's true that we had to dig a little deeper. We'd have to find something to read or, you know, and for us, screen time was television and that was about it. So I know I think for me, the idea is if, if we manage to exert enough pressure for a lot but technology are common is to redesign their tools. It will just be, won't be as difficult for us not to spend time. It will always may be difficult, but it doesn't have to be as hard. And it doesn't mean we'll get rid of them. We're never going back to screenless, our connected world. It's not a good idea either. But if my phone did not, was not so attractive, if I could get a phone from Apple, which will just have the basic functions, but I won't be able to check everything on my phone all the time. I think this would be great. Right now, we don't have these middle-of-the-way devices, at least not from the main manufacturers. So I think the world can look very different, but we've sort of lost our imagination to think about what it could look like because we're used to this. And that my, my big concern is people are saying, it's too late, we've missed the train, we're on the road, to more and more of this, you know, with smart cities, with virtual reality. And when I'm saying this, no, we, we have to stop and think and not give corporate interest the option to design a life. They've already, already done it for over a decade. It's not all up to them and it's not all up to us. And it's definitely not a lost battle. It's not a lost cause. In other words, well, just because it's the way it is now doesn't mean that it has to be that way. We can make changes. Right. You know, and I think a lot about this generation of children who are affected by climate change. And there are lots of teens who are fighting you know, against climate change to do everything they can. The thing is, these kids are sort of sitting there in front of these, what I call them abusive designs. And it's so easy to neglect them because it's so easy to have them sit next to screen. But and they're not going to fight for this because they're sort of sort of taken hostage by this. So I think it's the responsibility of people like you and me who remember things, things could be different to fight for them. Obviously, one way people can get started in getting involved and helping spread awareness is to grab the book. And I want to send people to where they can find out more about that. But I also want to send people to where they can find out more about you and get more resources on this. Get involved. Yes. So my book is on Amazon and Wired getting control over addictive technologies. I have a website, GaiaBernstein.com. And there are some great organizations there, like Fairplay, which has done a lot of work for kids. They have lots of resources. You could look at the websites as well. Perfect. We'll make sure to link up to that in the show notes to, to the book as well as to your site so people can dive in a little bit deeper on this. Again, this is not going away. In fact, it's actually only gotten worse since the very first time back in, I think, 2014, 15, when we first talked about it on this show. It's it's actually way worse. It's almost 10 years. It's way worse now than it was then. So we definitely need this. But Gaia, it's been amazing talking with you. Thank you so much, one, for writing this and two, for, for sharing your, your insight and wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me.
Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed listening in on this conversation with Gaia Bernstein about gaining control over addictive technologies. And I hope that you're walking away, maybe not with more answers, but maybe more questions, maybe a different perspective and approach or something that just helps you think about the role that technology is taking in your kids' lives, in your life. And really thinking about using it for its advantages and putting in guardrails that will help you when it comes to overuse and the addictive side of it. Because even those of us who did not grow up with technology, trust me, I grew up with video games. I was addicted, I still am actually, to video games. But, uh, you know, there's a time, there's a place, there's discipline. But again, it's not all about that per se, but that doesn't mean you don't have agency and advocacy for your own life, for those in your life that require you to do so. If you found this conversation helpful, and I hope that you did, would you do me a favor and share this episode with somebody that you know needs to hear it? Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening to this, or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. If you got an idea for a topic or a guest, you can also contact me there just again, go to beyondthetodolist.com and click the contact button up in the header. Thank you again for sharing. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.